HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are heading back to Brooklyn today to chat with Max and Marco the new co-executive chefs at the Chef's Table at Brooklyn Fair. They have taken over the legendary tasting menu and taking it to new heights. It is a fantastic chat about how they met cooking together on the line in Europe, what brought them to New York, and what it means to take over such an incredible and highly vaulted spot. Then it's a deep dive into the archive, and we are swinging by Tulum to stop at Gitano, the famous club, and chatting with the house band Habe. They give us a live musical performance and talk to us about being an international music collective with Middle Eastern rhythms and a sound that is live looping with electronic music, one of a kind, and such a blast for us to share with you. So please Sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on HRN.
Max and Marco, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Um, congratulations on the return, and it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. much. We are very happy to be here. You know, it's so rare these days to have chefs leave a restaurant and then come back. Um, a lot of the times, if you're in this fine dining world or, or upper echelon of, of cuisine, it's like you get moved to open up the empire. Like you're you're the first outpost. So what does it feel to come back as executive chefs as Brooklyn Fair? It feels absolutely amazing. Like we have the the best opportunity there is in the nicest city hmm. and in one of the best restaurants of the world. So we are very you know, happy, and it's a dream coming through. Um, all right, let's go back a little bit. So both born in Europe, Max, you're in Austria, Marco in Holland, and I know that the moms and the grandmas of your family were big chefs, and you talked about their influence. What do you remember about their cooking? What stayed with you? How early did you get into the kitchen with them? So we got into the kitchen with them. Um, I got in the kitchen with them all, already in an early, early stage. My mom was always super busy working, but on Saturday and Sunday, she was always like very into cooking, nurturing the family and just celebrating the whole stuff together. And that was always like, I w- was always torn, torn to that and always felt like a mag- magnetic vibe in the kitchen and everybody was meeting in the kitchen and you can taste and you can see and smell. And all those um, inputs were were amazing. Yeah, for my for my part, I grew up as a as a farmer uh, family boy. So my mom and dad they're uh, both working. Uh, they had their own company, a big farm. And honestly, it's like uh, also in a region where all the best vegetables, flowers, very famous region in the Netherlands. You know, very modern mm. techniques they use. So I grow up, and we always had seasonable products you know and that's like we had our own chicken so you mm-hmm, know you have mm-hmm. your own eggs you harvest your own strawberries blueberries in the summer in the winter you had citrus fruits apples mm. pears so and i still remember those flavors and i fell really in love with products and cooking and my mom made amazing food with that as well as my grandma did yeah so that's like the way how i was like you know that's very inspirational for me to yeah. use all yeah well, no, it's it's interesting because the way that you talk about it, like, let's be honest, when most Americans travel to Europe and they think of food, they're <clears> probably <throat> not thinking of Austria and Holland. But no. what, you know, but the way you two describe it, it's, you know, why not think of those two, uh, two areas? So what do people not understand? What do outsiders not get about the culinary cuisine of both your backgrounds, the cities you grew up in? I think, like, the, the Netherlands has a... Of course, like uh, they have like kind of an, they have a cuisine that's a little bit underrated sometimes, but they also mm-hmm. have like, they have amazing products. Like we are all surrounded by a sea, the North Sea. And mm-hmm. that is like, you know, it's such a jam, you know, we have one of the best oysters. We have, you mm-hmm. know, amazing lobsters in season. Uh, we honestly, we also work now here in the restaurant with a turbot. It's a flat fish. It's like the king of the sea. We call it there. It's very high end and <laughs> yeah, you know we we import it, we, we we serve it on the menu, and people they love it. It's absolutely amazing, and you know it's 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 great. And Max, what about you? What do people miss about where you grew up? Actually, it's super parallel Holland and Austria. That the cuisine is there, the DNA is there from the old 
historic uh, from the history. But at the end of the day, um, we are not lucky enough to be um, located near a sea. So <laughs> people in a couple of years really try to um, focus more on the regional products like amazing smoked sturgeon, trout, um, oh, yeah. uh, farm-raised, um, the diversity of tomatoes, for example, or onions. This is all happening in Austria right now. And we are also trying to to honor our heritage here at the restaurant. We're trying to put our own DNA stamp on the dishes. So we also, as Marco said, using the turbo from, from Holland. We're using the smoked sturgeon from America, but it has obviously the, the roots from Austrian cuisine as well. So we're also trying to do that. Yeah, I mean, you have these cuisines and these, these well-known produce you were sort of born into the kitchen and then you both cut your teeth yeah exactly. in the fine dining scene across yes. europe i i mean yeah. we don't have enough time to go through all the incredible restaurants yeah. you worked out yeah. so <clears throat> i'd love to hear more about what was the culture like at the time you have any stories to share i mean it's it's not too long ago because you guys are relatively young but it it is definitely i think like a different era than what is going on in kitchens today 100 percent. back in the day it was more hard working in the kitchen, much more people wanted to work in the kitchen. And so the it trickled down from the head chef down. So the atmosphere and the vibe was much more competitive, I mm. believe, than today, especially yeah. changed after COVID. And back in the day, it was much, you had to work with much more elbow. You know what I'm saying? Not in a negative way, but you have to be much more focused and see the, the end goal, what you want to become. So I think that definitely has changed, as you already said. Yeah. People like we, we work already together for a long time. Since mm -hmm. 2009, we worked in a very famous restaurant at that day. Uh, sadly, it closed because the chef owner moved on to other, you know, uh, opportunities and vendors. But like we worked there together since 2009. And that was a restaurant with three stars. It's called Outsliers. And people were honestly lined up there to work yeah. in the kitchen. Yeah. Mm, so when you when you got a spot there, it was, it was amazing. And basically, the first weeks you did like a tryout, the stars. They really saw, sure. saw like, hey, does this guy has it in him or not? Is he hungry enough? Can he stand? You know, can he work eighteen hours a day? It was it was a different a different vibe. Yeah. So that is, yeah. I think, nowadays that is really the difference. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but also <clears throat> there's been a shift because you know tasting menus fine dining yeah. has it's not out of fashion it's just you know when i look at restaurants let's just say la or new york new spots opening the people who are trying to open up these fine dining restaurants people who are going for michelin stars is not as common as it used to be but you guys were part of so many spots that got michelin stars and things like that so you know it, it's still important but some people think it it's it's a shifting in priority what do you guys feel like? Because you were part of teams that helped get there and sustain them, but now the, the dining landscape has changed a little bit. The dining landscape has definitely changed, but I still think that the tasting menu, and we can see it here at the Chef's Table in New York, because oh, yeah. you have direct, um, direct contact with the customers. It's a shift. It's much more younger, younger mm -hmm. crowd. People are really into it, especially with all yeah. the all the films coming out. So I wouldn't say that the, that the fine dining is sort of dying out. I think it's, it's a quite rejuvenating and you can mm. 
absolutely see that a lot of people are into it and a lot of young people are into it and really enjoying themselves coming there, especially for for their birthday or for cele- celebrating something special. Or it's, you can really tell that it's a much younger crowd than back in the day. Oh, I mean, I did my 40th at a Michelin star restaurant. That, exactly. That's exactly how yeah. I, I yeah, celebrated. Exactly. Yeah. But when I was younger, I mean, the prices have changed too. Of course. Uh, I used to be like, well, let's, let's, let's dial up a tasting menu a little bit more often than, than today. I also yeah. didn't have two kids in daycare, but that's another story. Yeah. So yeah. you guys mentioned you met back in 2009. Um, yeah. the same part- section. At the same yeah. time, it was a partnership side by side. Site, like, yeah. did you guys get along? Because sometimes yeah. there's sharp elbows <clears> in those <throat> kitchens, you know. No, we, no, we, we got, got along very well. Yeah, right yeah. away, off the bat. Yeah. It was more yes. like teamwork. We it was super tough kitchen to work in. Probably the toughest kitchen I will ever or yeah. we will ever work in because it was so time consuming. Yeah. And people nowadays think it's all a joke when we tell those stories, but it was all. It's all, that's all what, what, what happened. And, yeah. but this tough environment, I think creates a brotherhood and a, a core where you always think back to, and now I get goosebumps just thinking back mm. to working one section. So it really me- melted us together going through these hard, hard times. And now it's just like a, a natural bond we have, I would say. Yes. I, I can totally it. agree on that. And it's like, yeah. as you say, it was very hard. But if I have to do it all over again, I will do it in a heartbeat because yeah, it was one of the most amazing experience. Yeah. And you, you really create bonds there that are for life. Even if you work yeah. with people there and you don't see them for 10 years, you see them again. It's like the day of yesterday. It's like so yeah, like, special. It's like you go into it. war. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've it heard is. that analogy before. And it's, yeah. you know, the biggest thing that I've seen um, <clears throat> in the industry and I've heard from other chefs is that, you know, people – don't stay at places that long to even develop those bonds anymore. You exactly. know, some people, yeah. six months, around. a year, they're like, I got yeah. what I need. And, and yeah. Yeah. you know, it's, it, it's going deep versus going wide, um, yeah, I agree. which is shifted as well. So you're doing well in Europe. You guys are both from there. New York calls. When does New York start calling? Do you guys go at the same time? Why? I mean, I feel like you guys could have gone and opened up another spot, or been another part of another team in Europe. So why go to the city? So from my point of view, it was that we both worked in Holland. There was mm-hmm. a, a a guy coming from New York, from 11 Madison Park, who was back in the day, huge deal. And he was making a stage with us. His name is Austin. He is now a one Michelin star restaurant here in, in Tribeca. And then he said, well, there is a spot open at the Nomad Hotel. We're just opening that which was mm. like the sister restaurant from Daniel Home. It's a one Michelin star restaurant. And I saw that back in the day as an opportunity just to check out New York City. Mm. And it it hit off right right off the bat. And yeah, that's where I, I started my culinary career in New York abroad. Yeah, I mean, you also showed up at a time. And, and I want to get to that right after the break, because when you showed up to New York, the restaurant scene was one of the best in the world and just... Yeah. It was wild. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's take a quick break. I want to talk about coming to the city, the different cultural changes, and then your first stint at uh, Chef's Table Brooklyn Fair together. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on HRN.
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are with Max and Marco, the executive chefs at Chef's Table at Brooklyn Fair. And before the break, we're talking about you winding up in New York in the late aughts, which was arguably one of the most exciting times in this city to be a diner. Um, I was cutting my teeth in restaurants and I just felt like it was an endless opening and there was exciting ideas everywhere. And I even got to eat at the original Brooklyn Fair, um, which makes me think that I was at the table when you guys were Probably cooking. Probably so yes. yeah. how did you wind up at Brooklyn Fair the first time? And what was different about – because, you know, look, you're still doing like Michelin star tasting menus, but you're in America now. What was the difference? How did you feel? How did you wind up at Brooklyn Fair? I end up, I just like, I, uh, I also uh, started my, uh, my job here in New York City at 11 Madison Park. Mm. But for me, it was a big, big change. And they have, mm-hmm. for me, the best organization, so structural and like almost like military style. It's like, you know, big hats off to that organization. Very super nice restaurant. But for me, it was a little bit too big, you know. I was more uh, familiar with a smaller team. It was, uh, you know, so I needed another, you know, another tryout somewhere else. And what I did then, I heard already of the chef's table. And honestly, mm. it's very, it's a very funny story because Max and me, when we were still in the Netherlands, we were talking about uh, Michelin star restaurants. And the Michelin guide came out in uh, New York. And then the chef's table, they received the three Michelin stars. And mm-hmm. they received it in even like two years because they got the first two stars in the first year and they got three stars right after that. So it was like such a special place. Yeah. So it was already big time on the radar. And then I just, what I did on my day off, I was like, okay, because I had a J one student visa. So honestly I said to myself, you know, they were sponsoring me. I wanted to stay here, but I just wanted to work somewhere else because I cannot do this anymore at 11 Manson park because you know, I didn't like it that much. And I uh, know I went on my day off. I went to Brooklyn. I just stepped into the restaurant. Um, the chef uh, says I was sitting there and I asked him like, Hey, do you have a spot free? I'm looking for a spot in the kitchen. And right off the bat, he said, no, I don't have a spot free. <laughs> and I was like, okay, 
<clears throat> and then he asked me like, okay, but where are you from? I said, I'm from the Netherlands and I worked at restaurant Altslice. And then he was like, Hey, wait a second. You know, I know that place. He said, you have a minute to chat. Uh, so then I had a small, yeah, small talk with him. I went back the other week, did a tryout, got a job. And I was, uh, you know, that was uh, how I started at the, in the old location in Brooklyn, Skirmahon street. And it was really, you know, one of the most amazing times with a very small team at that time, but it was like, yeah, I loved it from the first day. I mean, it was a special place and <clears throat> tasting menus were definitely shifting in that time to really incorporate incorporating molecular gastronomy. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, like El Bulli is a huge influence on that. But yeah. what did you guys see, especially in America? Was there more freedom to experiment than maybe tasting menus in Europe? Did you have a little bit more room to play or was it still sort of following these set rules? So Marco actually brought me also on to the team at Chef's Table because there was a opportunity because it was such a small team and so he just told me now it's the perfect time to, to come and then I got hired right off the bat and I, me and Marco I think had the feeling that Cesar was doing something nobody did at that time of course oh, it was the, no. the red string <clears throat> in, the, in the whole menu which was this tasting menu but back in the day we had like how many courses Marco? How many small like dishes? 22 22 yeah. small bites with amazing yeah. amazing German porcelain from Herring Berlin and the, the the best products coming from Japan from back in the day Tsukiji yeah. fish market and yeah. all small bites and as a, a slither of um, Saba a small Kasuko Dai um, it was really for me and Marco I believe it was eye-opening to just see the perfection of product coming into the door alone starting with how they wrap the fish and how they treat the fish so it was really yeah. something highly special but always compared and paired with french technique yes. that was something i've never been in touch before no. yeah and it's interesting because you <clears throat> you see versions or you know nods to that cuisine now of course, but when yeah. you're eating there in the first time, and we we chatted with um, with Hannah Quarter Sheets, who was at Chez Panis when she started, mm -hmm. and you'd be like, "Oh, like I I feel like I've seen this a million times." I was like, "Yes, but this is where it started. This is exactly. like the core, and that's got to be so inspirational." <clears throat> um, you know, what was the reaction? Do you have any stories of of guests coming in, or do you remember serving people and them having a similar in uh, response the way you guys did? Yes, a lot of people, some people understood it, especially <clears throat> the Asian clientele understood it, but there were a lot of uh, European chefs coming in, European yeah. uh, guests who didn't understand back in the day the simplicity of just the product touched with, for example, Pinchudan no. with a pickled kelp leaf. And mm. this standing on a pedal stool of white uh, German ceramic, they didn't get that back in the day. Now I have the feeling it's back to the shift of being more product focused and now more, more and more people are doing that. But as you said before, this was like the nucleus of this mm -hmm. combination of the Japanese French cuisine. And a lot of people forget that we worked there for such a long time. So it is actually also our Marco and my DNA. So it was really something special back in the day. And you have to, you have to understand that we were from Europe and we mm -hmm. have amazing product, but we don't have the Japanese, we don't have no. access to the Japanese fish market. 
No, doesn't exist. Forty hour you know? flight. I mean, yeah. yeah. It's no, but that, you know, and I think New York, and then you have, of course, Tokyo, and then comes New York. But I think, you know, Anthony Bourdain said it one time. I mean, it was maybe a little bit overrated. He said sometimes, you know, New York have better sushi restaurants than than Tokyo. Like, you know, and it's like, you know, there is. Of course, I don't agree with that because I've been to Tokyo. <laughs> but, but, um, I need to say, like. You know, such an access, like we have it now too. We yeah. have our own guy in Suzuki Fish Market that we are like constantly in touch with him, you know, like uh, he's searching for us, like the best products there are, seasonable, not seasonable, like it's it's amazing. Like it's so luxurious you have and that, you yeah. know, and the European clientele, they didn't understand that, you know, but mm. now they are like, now they are maybe kind of jealous that we have access to such an amazing product like sea urchin, like Madai, like the best tuna. It's like, yeah, it's really a gem to have that. So look, you're at this exciting spot. You have clientele, three mission star. Why leave? You know, why why did you guys feel it was time to move on the first time? So for me, it was time. I believe I stayed there for three and a half years, and there was an opportunity coming up uh, to take over a chef's table in the Austrian Alps with. Mm. 18 seats yeah, go back to that? Austria yeah. and it was it, this was my first head chef opportunity and like Marco said before if I would do it again I would do it again because I was well protected with not having any Michelin stars in Austria and I could mm. really get my own groove my own DNA my own dishes work on much more uh, regional products around this area in the Alps and it was a huge huge benefit I had without any city uh, pressure of delivering every day you know what I'm saying yeah no totally totally and this was a very great opportunity for me to to get to feel with 27 my first kitchen chef pos uh, position and that was I stayed there for five and a half years so it's really amazing yeah. opportunity yeah and Marco what what uh, dictated your first step away from chef's table i also like i stay almost like maybe also five and all six years and then there was an opportunity coming up in the east village like a small restaurant spot like also a counter restaurant ukio mm -hmm. and then I, I came in touch with them he also had another restaurant uh Joe Abaco, and he said like well the restaurant is totally dead here you know he did like uh before had a different name the place he sure. said can you take this opportunity, you know, hire two other chefs and bring this back to life? And that for me was such a big opportunity. And oh, it was yeah. totally the opposite because, you know, at the chef's table here, we have everything. We have the nicest equipment. We have a beautiful stove. We have the best plate with the best product. And over there, you know, it's like you have a Rolls Royce and you're going to, with all due respect, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to drive in a, in a Honda, for example. So... And that's what I did. And I learned a lot of that. I received a Michelin star, you know, yeah. with, yeah, in 2019, I received one star for that. Uh, honestly, on the end, things didn't work out because, you know, it was just like uh, between, uh, you know, we were on a different page, me and the owner. You know, sure. I wanted to push harder and he was like, he said a little bit, wanted more patience with that. It's maybe also, you know, I was so hungry and so, you know, uh, how do I say motivated. that? Motivated, you know, mm -hmm. to reach for the sky. But as I say, I'm very proud of the job that we did there and that we received in that place in the East Village. 
you know, we received one star that's really like uh, winning the Super Bowl with the Detroit it's Lions. Incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, but I have to imagine, or maybe not, but so was chef's tables just in the back of your mind? I mean, you know, did you ever think that you would return or, and what was it like when you, when you got the call? Because obviously, and we don't need to get into it, there is the situation around the restaurant and the past ex-chef who was a big mentor to you and, and taught you a lot. And then you get asked to replace him. So a tough word the way you think about it, but yep. you're coming in to step True. in to, to this. Yep. How did you feel about it? You know, would you think about the restaurant? What was it like to get to come back, not just as someone working, but as co-executive chefs? It's a crazy, unimaginable <clears throat> idea. We both right. never thought about that, to be honest. And I can easily talk about me and Marco because it was always we always thought that this is going to be by itself running till the end of times because it yeah. is such a huge institution, you know? Right, Marco? Yes, absolutely. I never thought, and it was a big, big, big surprise, but it was like, you know, it was like I had to punch myself and I told my wife like yeah. am I am I dreaming or is this really true because yeah, yeah it's, it's the crazy. it's the biggest opportunity in life you can get yes absolutely but so. so you come back and you're leading the helm now you've both stepped away you've both run your own restaurants and as we mentioned like this is post pandemic restaurant culture has changed but you're still working at a the, one of the biggest high-end tasting restaurants in the world and keeping up the stars that you've won. How did you balance, I guess, the new way that people are running restaurants and then also bringing along longtime customers but saying, like, we're going to do things maybe a little bit differently? Exactly. So this is this is the balance act we are having right now. But we also have to say that, that we have the amazing uh, luck to have an owner who is fully committed and standing behind us and really understands the, the restaurant, the ethos of the restaurant. Yeah. And again, this restaurant is all about the best product and you cannot, you have to respect the past. We respect the past, but it's a fine line of respecting the past and also trying to put our own DNA on dishes. And this is what mm. we are doing now by yeah. slowly incorporating <clears throat> the turbo from Holland, slowly mm. incorporated the smoked sturgeon here and there, still having, because this restaurant was successful for 12 to 13 years with three Michigan stars. So yeah. it is also a kind of a, ch a, a slight challenge for us, but because you don't want to drastically change the whole menu and then people no. are like, this, this, this doesn't feel right. So you have to adapt it slowly and steadily. And I think we are absolutely on the right way because we have the direct contact with the guest and because they give us the direct feedback. So we are really doing this in the most homogenous way possible. Mm. Yeah. I mean, are tasting menus talking to each other across the world when it comes to trends? Because you all are operating in this Michelin system. Um, so if, you know, if you're like the three stars are tied to the three stars and the two stars are tied to two stars, are you seeing different shifts at other restaurants or is it like you're out there, I know you're doing something great, but we have just our blinders on, we're doing our own thing, we don't care what anyone else is doing. 
Yes, I think yes. it's very important. We learned that from our former chef in Holland who had three Michelin stars and he never ever ate at any other restaurants. Now, of course, we eat at other restaurants just to check them out, sure, but sure, it's sure. very important to really keep in tune with Marco and my philosophy by respecting the best products. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So we really are trying to, to do our own thing. And we totally believe in what we do. And we have also such an amazing team in front of the house, back of the house. So, yes. you know, if we make a new dish, sometimes, you know, we taste yeah. it and it's right on the spot. We really go for it. And sometimes it doesn't work. You know, we have to try over and over and over or it yeah. never hits the menu. And exactly. I think that's also, you know, it's a big plus that we have, that we have such a team effort here and we have really people yeah. that are very knowledgeable you know, and they're also really already a long time around in fine dining and especially yeah, and it makes it and especially also like me and Max, you know, we are always on the same page. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also important that the whole team in the front of the house, they stayed, everybody yeah. stayed, yeah. everybody yeah. sees the, the picture, everybody <clears throat> was, so to say, waiting for us to arrive and reopen. So they're really having our bag and they really feel the new like Phoenix out of the ashes vibe and they really feel the new energy and you can really tell at their faces that they're happy coming in and really they're representing us in the, in the utmost best uh, way they can do. It's really amazing to work with them. Now I have to ask, I mean, it's long days, it's high pressure. Um, what do you guys do to relax? How do you blow off steam? So I love to work out every day in the morning. I love to have ice cold showers and I love to go walk with my dog outside. And I think this is what really yeah. connects me, grounds me back. And this is really, I used to work in, in Munich and we had a four day work week, but it was lunch and dinner. And now we have a five day work week without lunch. We have double seatings at, at night and we work the same, if not less here than back in Munich. So this is really it's really nice. We have the, the mornings. I can, we can do something. We can uh, try to work out. So it's really nice to also get grounded and back to earth, so to say, after the, it's not even stress. I wouldn't call it stressful. It's, it still is, it still is and will always be a privilege to work here. So I wouldn't, it's, of course, sometimes it's a, it's a hectic atmosphere when there's a lot of things going on, but it's always been, I would never have any negative feeling with going to work. You know what I'm saying? And I think this is the right mindset just to be here. Marco, what about you? For me, I have an amazing family. So I have two kids. I have a son and a daughter. And honestly, if I have like uh, time left, I bring them to school in the morning. Mm. I play with them. You know, we go on, uh, on trips. You know, I live in New Jersey. I also like, I work out a little bit in the morning, not every day, you know, you know, kids are very, uh, intense sometimes and they I, take a lot I of have time. Two. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. 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 And I have to say I have an amazing wife. She does most of the work for them. That makes me also like, mm. uh, you know, such a privilege that I can do this job then and I can be fully focused on this and yeah, to blow off steam, you know, I honestly, I really love to watch sports. I love soccer. Mm. I love American football. I love the mentality those guys have. They are so you know, dedicated to what they do. And like, honestly, in this top, top, top world of restaurants, it's like a little bit the same mentality. You really need to go for it and you need to be yeah. every day dedicated. You need to love what you do. You really have to have a passion for it. And that's when, you know, what I'm gonna give the new generation that is like, you know, dedication and it's gonna take a lot of time, you know, to come there. 
but don't give up, you know, keep going. Beautiful. Well, what a great sentiment to end on. If people want to make a reservation, people want to eat with you, what's their best bet of, of securing a spot? Honestly, they can just like, you know, we have, uh, we have basically during the week, you know, we have always a spot uh, available sometimes Saturday nights, Friday nights, you know, it's, it's not that we are fully booked for a whole year. Hmm. We have okay. spots available. Yeah. Yeah. We are busy, yeah. but like there is, there is, there is spots available for sure. Yeah. So just plan ahead, plan ahead. Yeah. Yes. Uh, congratulations. I hope to swing in the next time I'm in the city and uh, big shout out to Nicole and Nina for setting this up. We have a song from the archives and then another live performance here on Snacky Tunes on HRN.
program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. This episode is supported by HRN business member Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX. Chemists in the Kitchen is a YouTube video series by LabX, spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through topics like making your own pickles, the chemistry behind ceviche, and much, much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality, with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your own kitchen. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Subscribe on YouTube to watch the entire series for free. Chemist in the Kitchen by LabX is a program of the National Academy of Sciences and supports HRN's creative educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. We have Leo Lenansky and Marcos Polras um, joining us from Switzerland and Mexico. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Hello, hello. Hi, Greg. Hi. So we just had a great conversation with James uh, for, from Gitano, but Leo, you are the music director um, for Gitano, and Marcos, you are part of the house band trio Habe. Uh, mm-hmm. it's great to connect with you guys first and foremost, as we ask everyone during this time, how are you two doing? I am great. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm doing fine sitting here in Switzerland. Um, yeah, summer is coming along. So it's, it's a good time to be here in Europe. Um, how are you doing? Me, Philadelphia, summer here, not too hot. Good. Marcos, how is uh, how's Tulum? Uh, well, we have just like two seasons here in Tulum. We have summer and hell. So now we are in hell. Uh, <laughs> and um, but beside that, I have uh, air conditioning on my studio. So it's a good time to produce and to design new projects and stuff. So I'm doing great. Uh, for those of the uninitiated, um, can you give some characteristics of hell? Hell, what okay. makes it so? <laughs> uh, first, uh, like uh, a million degrees, um, very humid, um, and a thousand mosquitoes by square meter. It's like, yeah, hell. <laughs> There's no other way to describe it. Um, <laughs> yep. Uh, Marcos, I, I want to start with you. Um, you started your music career, your musical career, when you were seventeen. 
um, yeah. and then started playing uh, 19 professionally. What were some mm-hmm. of the early instruments that you picked up and what were some of the sounds that defined your, your youth? Okay. Um, I started singing when I was like nine for school projects and stuff. And then when I was like 15, um, we wanted to like start, you know, a rock band that, that was popular at that time. Um, and I was the lead singer, but it turns like I wasn't that good singing. So <laughs> I started with the bass because I, I wanted to belong to a band and, and do music and, and stuff. I, I, I was a rugby player and I injured my, um, my leg and, um, well, I, I had a lot of free time, you know, like just like high school and, and, and in rugby for me at that time. And when I, when I injured my, my leg, I started with, with music, with bass. Um, and, and that's why that, that was it. Yeah. And, um, being from Argentina, uh, what were some of the bands, the rock bands that you were into at that time that were influencing uh, your decision to join a group? Okay, that's a good question. Um, do you know anything about Argentinian music? Um, it's like it's it's like we have like a complete different scene in Argentina. That uh, it's a big scene. Um, maybe maybe Leo knows knows about um, Solar Stereo, which is uh, an oh, Argentinian band, of course. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, like Solar Stereo is like a pop rock band, a very a very big band, and um, we have like plenty of all over Latin bands. America, no? Um. They're famous all over Latin America, no? Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah, indeed. But Argentinians are very, like, rock and music fans. Um, the concerts there, I, like, uh, go to the church, you know? It's like, okay, let's do this. It's like <laughs> something very spiritual for us. So, um, and not just for rock bands, but, like, folkloric bands, Um and like popular music like Cuarteto, which is uh, a mixture between um, Tarantella, which is like a, a, an Italian rhythm, and Paso Doble, which is like from countryside in Argentina. Uh, well, Cuarteto Borns and a lot of people, like 5,000 people at least, goes to, 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 to Cuarteto dancing places with live music from Wednesday to Sunday always in Cordoba, always like it's, it's a very, it's a very like particular phenomenon there. Um, so I think that we're, we, we don't choose the music that we are influenced by. I mean, we can be influenced by music uh, in a good way or in a positive way or in a negative way, but we're, we are not choosing the music. We're just like exposed to the music. So mm. all that culture make makes me the musician that I am right now. Hmm. And Leo, um, how did you get your start in music? Um, did you DJ? Did you play in the band? Was it always from the programming side? Where did your passion begin? Um, it actually started in Berlin a few years ago because I was working in nightlife in some bars and clubs. 
uh, I was in my very early 20s and started DJing. I mean, the whole thing started probably earlier when I was a teenager. I used to make CDs, like do compilations of music and burn CDs for my friends and stuff like that. But really getting into it in a deeper way was in nightlife there because in Berlin I was working in this bar which was a wild place, a really wild place called King Size. And I started DJing there sometimes. By the same time, I, I played guitar a lot and started pro- uh, recording music as well. So the whole thing, yeah, I took my way from there and started producing. I was DJing on the side. I just had a feeling for the music that... Uh, that um, I really liked it. I enjoyed it, making music and playing music. So I don't know. I guess it's just started there at some point and got into my way of music direction came years later. Yeah. Uh, how did you both make your way or find yourself in Tulum? <laughs> um, I, I, I went there in 2011 for the first time. I worked in a project in 2012 where I met a lot of people and somehow I went back to Mexico over and over. I used to live in Europe still by then, but I came back to Mexico all the time. And uh, yeah, I made a lot of friends there, worked there um, frequently and I had a good time. I really liked it, even though Tulum changed a lot. So yeah, I guess I started, uh, yeah started like that 2011 2012 and marcos um i came here at 2017 um because I, I i got a lot of friends here and they were like hey man you need to go uh to tulum because it's so good you need to go and do music over there and stuff so um, I was uh, like finishing some projects in Argentina and I decided to, to come here and here I am uh, because I really like the place. Incredible. And when you both arrived there, um, how would you describe the, the music scene? You know, what was the sound of Tulum? Is there a sound of Tulum and, uh, and who were some of the, the groups uh, and players? There definitely is a sound of Tulum. Uh, back in the days it was very down tempo for example this organic down tempo music was a huge thing in tulum um i saw i actually saw a lot of people rising um through tulum into the worldwide scene of music through this kind of music the whole down tempo yeah oriental uh, latin american mix and everything it's it has it has its own special tune for sure in my opinion and and marcos from the live music scene which is not always uh, uh analogous to the the dj scene what what type of music and sounds did you hear there if i had to pick um one word to describe tulum and what tulum means to me in music it's diversity um because here I, I found like a lot of musicians from very different genres. I, I, I have been playing with um, Balkan bands. I have been playing with 
flamenco bands, rock bands, uh, funk, soul, R&B bands, um, jazz bands, bossa nova bands. Um, so, so, so diverse. It's like a lot of musicians and a lot of different musics and different moods here. I think yeah. that's 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 the beauty thing of, of Tulum, right? Like the diversity. Yeah, I agree. It. I, I mean, I have to say as well when we talk about that through the years, it went through a, a through a change. When with, for example, with the whole down tempo, how it started back in the days. When I went there, not in general, just when I went there in 2011, 2012, that was a big thing coming up. But as Marco says, I feel like nowadays there is a huge diversity. I totally agree on that. For example, Hitano went, uh, has a huge disco thing as well. It's really known for disco and house music. Uh, incredible. Well, why don't we uh, hear a song from Habe? Uh, Marcos, what, what song are you guys going to play for us first? Uh, the first song is the anonymous. It's Habe. Amazing. Uh, well, here we go with Habe on live on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
Leo, you, you mentioned that Gitano is known for house and disco. Um, how would you describe the audio signature for the place and how it's evolved um, mm. into what you know today? You mean the process, what happened in the last years? Exactly. Okay. Um, well, as, as I mentioned before, in my opinion, when I came to Tulum, to Tulum for the first time, it was Tulum was very had a had a strong scene with with this down tempo, uh, deep house music. Um, Hitano, on the other hand, there there is music, such music. Of course, we book stuff like that as well uh, as part of my job. But we are very known as well for the whole um, disco and house um, elements. The Friday night we have is a it's a huge night every week um in low season in high season and we book a lot of people that play a lot of afro it's afro music from um afro house disco tunes it's very eclectic the whole mix which makes it for me very interesting to work there as well and book people because you have a huge there's there's a diversity in, in the genres that's something i really enjoy uh, Marcos, Habe uh, formed uh, earlier this year, and it's your trio. How did you come together and and uh, put together a group and decide on the sound that you're going to to play? Okay, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> well, first I met Fede um, because I mean I'm from Mendoza. I mean my family is from Mendoza, but I lived in Cordoba from. Like since I was like four, so I'm more Cordobes than <laughs> than Mendocino. And okay, I met Fed in Cordoba, and and we met again here in 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 Tulum. And I know that Fed like likes the same music because he have like a Syrian ancestors. Uh, so we started the band with Santi. Um, which is another another guy, another friend that right now is in Argentina, and like we know that Santi can't do it like anymore, so we started to to make music with Rocco, um, that it's from Serbia, and he's like a very good producer, very good sound engineer. So we 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 all met and we started to play together and it works and it was like amazing we have a like a very enjoyable time and um i think i think that's all about music right about connection chemistry and when 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 that it's working everything else is going to work uh exactly and how does um do you just play uh, Titano or uh, do you travel around and play? Like, uh, How easy is it for bands to play all over the area or do bands tend to stick to one or two places? Well, um, I can say uh, that we're traveling because the band like have been like formed this year. So, and this year is kind of difficult to travel. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> uh so but yeah i mean we, we mainly play not in gitano we we play in mese which is an amazing place from gitano group um it's it's greek leo right it's a greek place like it's greek uh, like yeah you can i mean it's it's eden like the whole area it's very 
it has a Greek. Okay. In, well, the chef is Greek. He's an amazing cook that makes all the Greek food. And, but yeah. It's Egin. We call it the Egin Taverna. Egin, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, we, we started to play there. Um, and now it's Nomade and, and, and other places like in, in, in that in that area, which is like kind of the best area to play and to and to make music. Uh, great. Can we hear another song? Okay. Uh, uh, let's, let's hear Malaiko.
one of the coolest things I think about the band is that uh, you guys are attached to Studio Tulum, uh, which is a record label and also uh, studio inside Tulum. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of the label and uh, how it came to be? Well, I can tell you a little bit because the studio, Studio Tulum, it's um, an entrepreneurship uh, from Rocos. Um, studio Tulum, it's a recording studio. It's a very cool recording studio. Rocco, it's an amazing engineer, uh, amazing music producer. And he had produced like a lot of projects here in Tulum, like Samapash, that it's like a flamenco fusion band. And um, he had produced Camille Gomez-Tuaez, which is a French singer, an amazing French singer. Um, that makes like R&B, soul, new soul, um, and many other projects that you know, don't came to my mind right now because, as I told you, I'm I, I'm not the I'm not the head of Tulum. I'm just attached because of the band. Uh, but it's an amazing studio. Rocco have amazing equipment and amazing ideas. That's that that's the cool thing about Rocco. And and re- he really knows the the music industry. Um, he really knows how to promote and how to develop, you know, um, how to develop like projects, how to do it, how to, how to like, um, improve and increase your, your performance as, as a musician. Rook, it's, it's, it's really good. And, uh, I know that we're all taking a pause this year on live events um leo you were telling me that you cannot throw any parties yet and for those of people who don't know in tulum certain places have uh kind of claimed nights of the week um what are you thinking in ways to still bring the tulum sound and the and you know continue to push diversity um as we all wait this out together sorry again i didn't hear it proper it was oh um what are you planning to do to kind of continue to push out the Titano music to the Tulum community as we all wait uh, this out together? Yeah, um, we. Uh, I changed my focus lately while we were closed because of the whole COVID situation. Um, I changed my focus a little bit to the SoundCloud page as well. Um, I asked a lot of people like DJs, artists to record some sets uh, that I can upload on the SoundCloud page which works really well, and we made posts with that, which was a successful project. Um, yeah, it was good to do this because like this, you keep keep DJs busy, basically, or artists in general, and you give them a chance to record something and send it to you, and you can upload it and just spread it through Instagram, for example, and people can still click on the things. They were able to listen it at home or even play on little private parties, which apparently happened uh, a lot all over the planet. So, yeah, that was one of the ways that we used to to still keep on maintaining the whole music business with Hitano. And Marcos, as a musician, um, how are you keeping yourself creatively engaged during this time? I'm trying to go to the private parties. <laughs> <laughs> Touché. <laughs> uh, no, um, like we keep producing music um, because, like, 
that's like no not not a thing like that is attached to like work you know like to 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 make profit it's like more it's a need you know we need to produce some music um actually we are like making a tulum album with a lot of artists different artists that make original music here and like we are setting up all the marketing strategy and all that stuff um like we are producing we are we are we are doing music um and and that's the interest the interest thing about this covid situation that is how um not just um not just the music scene but the music mindset it it needs to turn you know because it's it's, it's very different how it's how it's right now and how it was like four or five months ago i totally agree i see it around me as well <laughs> there's what you're saying reminds me too i feel like there's a lot of artists out there that get very productive and very creative and they use the chance that they have a lot of free time go to studios and record and there's other people that really struggle and they lose their creativity it's it's really interesting how this whole situation changes the brain sometimes absolutely yeah i agree 100 uh, percent. yeah Uh, well, we want to make sure we have time for one more song, um, but where can people find you, um, follow you, hear your music, hear the DJ sets? Um, sorry, mine or, or, or Gitanos? Both. Okay. Marcos, say it. Um, <laughs> you can find me on Facebook, on Instagram as Habe Music. And we have a SoundCloud um, spot that it's Javi too. Yeah, and the whole Hitano thing you can find. Well, there's a lot of links as well in Instagram that we made the posts for the artists when we recorded the sets. But also on SoundCloud, for example, um, you can just enter Hitano Sound, like Hitano underline sound, and you find most of the sets there which were recorded and uploaded. Amazing. Uh, Marcos, what is the name of the last song you guys are going to play for us today? Okay, this is a, a very particular name, which like rise in a very particular time. It's Sultan Returns, No One Bend the Knee. <laughs> Great name. Amazing name. Uh, thank you to the whole Hatano crew. Uh, we wish you the best of luck in the reopening of all of your spaces. Uh, thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Snacky Tunes. We'll be back next week. See you then.
We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes. Snacky tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.